What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 49 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise UK and sponsored by Stereo Brand Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and as ever, I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? Couldn't be better, my friend. How are you? Terrified, mate, to think that we've done 49 episodes of this and we are one away from the big 5 out. Mate, it's um, it's incredible. Actually, I didn't even, I didn't even consider that like this. We're this close to fifty. Fifty feels like a lot. Fifty feels and, like a lot. And it's crazy considering like we do, we used, to, we do this fortnightly. But because of these single episodes that we're doing every week, it's really like knock the numbers up quickly. So on what like fifty odd hours of us talking shit. Like and obviously a lot of episodes as well. We do like an hour and a half, two hours. So. I mean, if you're still here with us after 100 hours, then you are one of the absolute boys and the dons that we need to just, like, placard up around mine and Sam's room for listening to us for this long. Absolutely, absolutely. This is also just the, the shit we talk that's been mic'd up. Yeah, like, fucking hell. She was <laughs> <reversed, she laughs> on Saturday night. I was with you for 10 hours. <laughs> shit was chat. Oh, my um, God. Pathetic in, in nonsense. In, in excess. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 astonishing that there are people that will will literally hear us um, wax lyrical about like metal um, every week, and they think the six days later something else comes up about us waxing lyrical about metal. And I think you know what? I'll try this again. Uh, respect to those people. I need I need those people in my lives more often. Actually, it's just a wonderful wonderful thing to be part of. And if the conversations that we have on here annoy you, you should listen to the ones that we have off mic. As Sam said, absolute nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, this is professional versions of us. This is upbeat versions of us. This is us trying to be interesting. Yeah, just like, zero sub, just zero substance. Yeah, all empty calorie bullshit, bro. We're a weekly rock and metal podcast. Again, I mentioned sponsored by the wonderful folks at Stereo Brain Records. We're available on YouTube, Apple Music, and Spotify. Speaking of, if you have been listening to us for such a long time and you are yet to subscribe. Please do so. And also, if you're a new listener as well, that'd be awesome to click that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple Music or Spotify, wherever you are listening to podcasts, we will be there. On the last episode, uh, we entered Metallica's self-titled album in at number six on our greatest metal album of all time list. In fact, I'm surprised me and Sam aren't still talking about it. Uh, that episode was like this absolute mammoth depiction of that album. That's got to be the longest mm-hmm. chat we've done on an album in the whole time we've done this, easily. Yeah, I, re- I really think so. Definitely the definitely the longest conversation we've had about any singular topic. Yeah, I want to say ever sound check included. That was yeah, massive deep dive, hundred percent. Like if there was something about Metallica's self-titled album that you were hoping people would to to uh, gents would go into or to anyone would go into, um, or, or maybe there's something that you think you didn't know about the Black Album, I would like to put ourselves. On a, on a limb here and say that I think we probably went over it in that show. So if you're a big fan of Metallica's self-titled album, which why the fuck wouldn't you be if you're listening to this show, you're into metal, surely you are. Uh, go back and listen to that episode because there is a great, great level of detail on the, just the brilliance of that record. And we also did an album review on Cold Gears Paradise, which I am still listening to. And my vinyl, yeah. showed, up, my vinyl showed up today. Fucking what a record. Brilliant. Yeah, completely agreed. Really, um, really liked them when they came out with their first appeal. I'm so happy that their album matches up to that early optimism too. No, I'm classic. You got the vinyl as well. I think that's sick. On this week's show, uh, I'm going to be honest with you all. I struggled to find new albums of notes that I actually wanted us to talk about. So I figured 
Why don't we just continue? <laughs> Suck it, music industry. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Oh, yeah. So I figured, why don't we just continue our chat on the greatest metal album of all time? So actually, this episode is dedicated to number five, and our list, we are nearing that fucking Mount Rushmore. Um, there is some news items that I want to discuss as well, but in regards to new albums coming out, don't worry, because me and Sam have got an absolute mammoth listing of records coming out, which I told you about on Saturday, Sam. And also, yes. we've got some really, really cool interviews coming up with you as well. There's one really, really brilliant, can't believe we've been given this opportunity, that I don't want to say because it hasn't actually happened yet. And I've done this before where I'm like, oh my God, we're gonna, I'm going to do a Chris Meets XYZ person, and then somehow it falls through, they're too busy, I'm too busy with working, it doesn't happen. So I've got something really, really awesome that I can't believe I've been given the opportunity to do, lined up for Thursday. But until it's done, I'm not going to say it. Do you know what I mean? Just so I don't curse it. Very, very exciting prospect ahead. There are some news items I want to discuss too, Sam. So let's jump right into those as we begin this episode. Please. Um, want to just land straight onto Metallica's SNM2, Sam, coming fourth on the Billboard 200 with an approximate 56,000 sales. Now, me and you watched Metallica's SNM2 in our local cine world, uh, which is really fucking great. I mean, uh, one of the mm. one of my favourite things that we've done outside of being a gig, that is. It was just really fucking sick to do together. Uh, dude, I mean, again, we're talking about Metallica. I mean, fuck me, dude. This is a live album. <laughs> it's a live album yeah. coming forth on the Billboard 200. 56,000 sales. I mean, I mean, what can Unreal. we even say about Metallica's size at this point? How do we even define this? It's just impossible now, isn't it? Yeah, it is absurd. Uh, it really, really is. This is a live album featuring no new songs um, that was that had already been released. That already that already ran that already appeared on the same day on Spotify, and they did this big like publication thing with Spotify where. Um, they had the band like James Hetfield talking through some of the songs and the process and stuff on Spotify. So if you already had Spotify, like I do, um, you were given the album anyway and all this access. And I still bought it. Yeah. So yeah. I, 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 like, I, I, like it's just it's just the, na- the nature of the beast, really, with Metallica. I think they have an ardent fan base. And this is the thing as well. I actually forgot this because I, I, I rewatched it, um, I think, on Friday. And all the members of the people that were at that San Francisco arena, which was like um, a 40,000-seater basketball arena, including the people that could fit on the floor and stuff, they were all paying Metallica club members. So, because Lars spoke midway through the gig, he's like, oh, everyone in the... Welcome Metallica club members. Um, Like, they were all (laughs) part of a fan club. Yeah. Like and and that was just in San Francisco, so they've just swarmed there from different parts of the globe and stuff. And I don't think that really happens to many of the bands where you can get like that amount of people that sort of showing up. So when this album actually comes out, when this live album drops, absolutely no surprise that it shot up the way that it did. And also fair play to them. Um, I I was mentioning this um, to my dad at home today as we were talking about it. Um, but 40 years, 55 decades in to this band, they're still doing new shit and yeah, new stuff amazing, and stretching amazing. the borders out. And, and, and they could have gone down the ACDC route, not just respect to ACDC, but they could have done tour every five years, new album, nice and consistent, play the, play the stadiums, play the hits, keep it simple. 
and could have just chucked out a like multi-million tour after multi-million tour. But they keep stretching their fingers out and keep like trying to push their own boundaries and stuff. And I think that is, even if I remove my own personal bias, if somebody else was doing it like this, I'd, I'd have massive respect for them. And to do this at this, their age as well, where they're diversifying to this extent, after already diversifying to the extent they already have, I think he's really commendable and really admirable. I mean, like I said, man, there's nothing else to add to the size of Metallica. I just wanted to point that out. Fucking another massive achievement, another big achievement for Metallica. Their legendary status continues to write its own chapter chapters and it probably will still be doing so until 2031 until they're in the 60s and they're like oh we can't actually play anymore <laughs> we physically cannot yeah they're going to be the first band to import like cryogenetics or something as part of their <laughs> yeah. live show like there'll, there'll be something that they do somehow although um you listen to james he could uh, he conceivably could do this for another decade and then the fact that actually it's a separate conversation that I want to go down the rabbit hole of, but you know, with his rehab and stuff, he's probably, he's come out of that and, and, and sort of got through that. That might add a few years onto his, his health and that sort of stuff. I'm being, trying to be optimistic, obviously. Um, but if they continue to live the lives they live and keep themselves in shape, there's no reason why we can't be seeing Metallica shows in 2035. I, I really think that. And we'd still fucking be there paying £100 a time and having no problem with it. And they'll, like I said, they'll reinvent the wheel and do something they'll do something else cool like do you remember when i was telling you that they were going to do they plan this festival in america where on two nights there were two separate metallica sets like two and a half hours one day two and a half hours the other so five hours of metallica and obviously the set list would be different i think if there's ever going to be one final metallica download show i think that's what they'll do metallica headline two nights two and a half hours two and a half hours and then that's yeah metallica download I'd swap a house to go there. <laughs> yeah. Five that. hours of Metallica. There's, there's no price I wouldn't pay. Honestly, God's like, I wouldn't, still, even, wouldn't, even, wouldn't even blink. They still wouldn't play Fade to Black. Yeah, fuck <laughs> it. I'd fucking make sure I'm maybe me charging through the front. Like, <laughs> excuse me. Are you going to um, play this? But, <laughs> holding up a sign trying to crowd surf my way through 90,000 people. Uh, but yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me to do anything. I mean, literally they've, they've, They've done everything, haven't they? They've played like Antarctica. They've played Set List by Request, symphony orchestras, documentaries. I mean, everything. Everything. They're, they're, they're an incredible band. So that's not incredible, Sam. Uh, Reading and Leeds announced a line-up uh, this week. Yeah, something that's <laughs> very not incredible at all. Something that doesn't have a single incredible thing on it at all. So, I mean, this is, this is interesting, isn't it? I'm just going to grab the line-up back here because I think I've accidentally just closed the tab. Um, you've never been to a Reading Leeds festival, have you, Sam? I, I have not. I have not. So, I think there's, you know, there is an argument for sometimes, maybe, the best way to determine the state of modern contemporary rock and metal sometimes isn't download and as and is instead reading and leads and the reason why i would yeah. say well, the reason why i would say there is an argument for that is because reading and leads are a, a festival that tries to cater to them uh, that now not, not previously now more than ever uh, more than ever tries to cater to as many possible audiences as possible so the 
acts that they would choose from our quote-unquote world, although I don't like that term, to put up to the upper echelons of the bill, those would be the acts that you would be, te- that you would be told are the acts that are set to be the most successful. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because, because Download are always going to choose Steel Panther to play, I don't know, headline the second stage or play fourth on the main stage or sub-headline the second stage. But, sub, but Steel Panther would never get anywhere near any of the leads. For obvious reasons. But yeah, that's, and that's a, that might not be a great example, but you see the point I'm trying and to make. being terrible is the obvious yeah, reason. Well, yeah, they're not a very good band for a start. But, but yeah, no, the- I, I think... I, think, I completely agree. I think that Reading and Leeds is highlights the universality of certain, of certain bands that could, that could sort of appear for both. And it is a festival that can simultaneously cater to somebody like yourself. And it's worth mentioning that we were set to go this year because of Rage. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, so, and that's, that's a band that we love and we talk about and could have possibly headlined Download, but instead played Reading and Leeds to show that there are some consistencies there. So I agree with you. It's not going to be a fully metal show ever, but there is certainly, in the past years, there has been more than enough bands that if you were a discerning rock music fan, you'd love to go, including Rimby the Rising, including Metallica, like you've mentioned. So as we get through to this year's lineup, uh, they've actually made a very bold and what was very exciting to me before I actually knew what the lineup was, uh, step of having six headliners. So, when, when, you know, and I told you about this, didn't I? I was like, dude, you know, we're amazing. Mm-hmm. I have six headliners. Yeah. I was like, this could be like really wicked. We could really, we could want to go. It's like two of these days. Um, however, uh, six headliners, Stormzy, Catfish and the Bottlemen, Post Malone, Disclosure, Liam Gallagher and Queens of the Stone Age also appearing on the weekend. Louis Capaldi, Two Door Cinema Club, AJ Tracy, The Baby, Doja Cat, Mabel, MK, uh, and Fever 333, as well as uh, some others. I do also believe that Youngblood and Neck Deep have been added on to the lineup since its original announcement. Now, obviously, massive shout out Fever 333. They're, they're absolute boys. But, Sam, it's fair to say that this is the Reading Leeds lineup that caters least to me and you than any for some years now, I would say. Now, before before you. Uh, chime in they haven't yet announced what the pit stage is going to be now usually regardless of what's going on on the main stage the pit has always got some has got has always got a fair bit really for me and you for example uh, i've got a couple of lineups listed here on for Reading and leeds uh one start one year on the pit stage uh while she sleeps uh amity affliction arcane roots asteroid boys Culture abuse, uh, Muncie girls, fizzy blood. Like, you, you know, usually, and that was 2017, I believe. Usually, oh, Billy Talent as well. That's a fucking great shape for fucking Leeds, Reading Leeds, actually. Usually, mm. something, the, the pit stage will be where me or you would you tend to go to. But obviously, we don't know what that pit stage, pit stage lineup looks like at this point. So, obviously, our critiques of the of the lineup thus far aren't really that well founded because we don't know all of it but even with that said mate this opening are they even trying to get people like me or you in at this point i don't i'm not even sure whether they are <laughs> for this year no, anyway for this yeah. year 
it doesn't it doesn't at all seem like it's been catered to anybody that has the musical taste of me of me or yourself i mean it's it's crazy to me that they have six headliners and they're they're, they're out for six when they had three they were at least one for three like the, the percentage has gone down they've increased their catchment and still had less success um now i i've got no issue with the bands in isolation really like i i don't want to be i don't want to be snobby um or just Lewis Capaldi, AJ Tracy, Radio One Acts. They're just not for me. Um, Post Malone, I can I understand. I think that's a good get, like in, in like in um in a vacuum for yeah. Reginald Leeds because he's incredibly popular. Catfish and the Bottle Men, astonishing choice as a headliner. Um, I can't even I I can't even name a single song of theirs. And I think if you're a Reginald Leeds headliner, there's got to be some universality to you. Um, I, I just think. It just seems crazy to me. Um, this seems like instead of trying to be a midpoint between, um, say, Glastonbury and Download, it just seems like they're a slightly edgier Glastonbury. Um, and yeah. it just seems to be attracting an entirely different group of people. And I actually think that Redden and Leeds used to, like you've said, um, toe the line or, or sort of be able to get be parallel between the two and successfully find a balance. But, mate, you'd have to have 15 of my favourite 60 bands on that pit stage that you mentioned for me yeah. to even consider yeah. coming to this. Because you'd be paying for the headliners, of which I wouldn't see. Yeah. And, like, I appreciate Liam Gallagher's there and all that sort of stuff, and it'll be cool. He'll play, like, you know, Don't Look Back in Anger and stuff. And after a couple of beers, that'll be a laugh. And Quiz the Stone Age have got a hit. And <laughs> that that would be cool. Uh, Lewis Capaldi, it's not for me, but I could again, it's a good get. He's 2019's Artist of the Year, isn't he? Really in the UK, uh, and and Stormzy always puts in a, a terrific live performance. So in isolation, I'm not I'm not going to insult those acts. You know what I mean? Um, but I just think, like like you said, this this lineup is so one tracked. It's so very one tracked. Um, they've clearly made a calculated decision. And uh, maybe they've looked at no, we don't know the figures. Maybe they've looked at the, you know, the amount of bands they've booked for certain genres and the amount of return they get in terms of actual attendance. You say people like me and you wouldn't go. How many people like me and you would have gone? Well, anyway, that is, is a, a good point. Is an interesting counterpoint. We don't know that thing. I, I assume uh, that I'm assuming they have data on entries and and how many bands have of certain popularity. Like it's cool for me and you. If me and you pay 150 quid and there's like. 12 bands we love on there. I mean, you can kick off at tent or something, but if there's only like 2000 people that feel the way that me and you feel, then it's not actually worth it for the festival to put on. I get it. Um, man, yeah. It's, it's a, a, that, I say this also wishing that they'd still done that, but because this feels, this feels very one track. Fever three, three, three do stick a bit, <laughs> do stick out a little bit on this, don't they? They uh, completely on a different sort of chain of existence. They do, but once the, once, once the pit stage is fully announced, they might not. Because, like That's I say, you, you know, usually... I mean, mate, listen to this. For a pit stage, the one year, Mastodon, the Divinger Escape, the, the, the Escape Plan, Thrice, Crossfaith, Hacktivist, Cavell Attack, uh, Heck, uh, Arcane Roots, Modern Baseball. Like, you know, the, the pit stage can really fucking slam. And also, this was the year that had uh, Coheed and Cambria on the main stage, State Chance Parkway Drive, which they did actually, they didn't end up playing Leeds. 
I, I was at Leeds this year. They didn't actually end up playing. They had a family bereavement, I, I believe. Uh, obviously, Red Hot Chili Peppers headlined. My boys, Biffy Clyro headlined. It was a fucking great year for me at Leeds. It was such a sick time. Um, but, and I, what I think is, is a bit strange about this lineup is that there does seem to be a selection of as many different genres as I could possibly get. But they've got both Catfish and the Bottleman and, and Liam Gallagher. Now, I am far from an aficionado on Catfish and the Bottleman, but two indie choices is a, does, is a little bit odd because you've got Stormzy as like your rap hip-hop, you've got Post Malone also as like, He's like modern contemporary pop rap, isn't he? Really, I suppose my personal now. disclosure for like your big massive tech DJ set. Liam Gallagher to belt out like your modern classics of Oasis tracks. Queens of the Stone Age, like a legacy Reading Leeds act. They were always going to headline mm. Queens of the Stone Age. You're never going to play anywhere other than the headline and playing Reading Leeds for years. Um, and they, they are, they've got a massive fan base. They are, you know, there is no dispute. Yeah, yeah. But to have both, for me, to have both Catfish and Liam Gallagher is strange. Now, what I always think is sometimes, for me, people, festival bookers do get something of a free pass because you will never know, and it is impossible to know, who they approached, who they originally wanted, and who here is just who they've ended up landing on. You will have seen, most likely, Sam, on Twitter or on Facebook, a large discussion of, the absence of females in these in these headliners, which is a bit of an issue, really. I've got to say, with Reading Festival, you look through previous Reading um, Reading Festival headliners. I'll just read the last couple of years: 1975, Post Malone, 21 Pilots, Foo Fighters, um, Fall Out Boy, Travis Scott, Kendrick Lamar, Panic at the Disco. Now, actually, I do believe Panic at the Disco. Brendan Yuri does sometimes use female touring musicians, although I can't confirm that. Uh, Kings of Leon, and then another year we've got uh, Kasabian, Eminem, Muse. Another year, Foles, Disclosure, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Biffy Claro, Fallout Boy, and then another year, Mumford & Sons, Metallica, The Libertines. Now, I mean, that is, what, six years in a row, I think, or five years at the very least, where, you know, it does stand out a little bit that, <laughs> that there's uh, no females included, and that, you know, Elements, areas of Twitter have really kicked off about this. And I do understand why they would be perturbed at, when you look at historically at the lineups. However, for me personally, you will never know. that There's no way of knowing that Live Nation, who are Festival Republic, who I believe that a book read in Leeds, there's no way of knowing that Festival Republic didn't ask Florence and the Machine, didn't ask Billie Eilish, but those who asked couldn't. Do you mean uh, Paramore are, are in hiatus? I believe so. They're they're out of the question. But the two that come to mind first are uh, Florence and the Machine and Billy Eilish. There's no way I was ever knowing whether they weren't asked and they said no because of other commitments or they just didn't want to do it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Of course I do. Of course I do. Um, I think it's odd to me that. Um, that you would you there's an assumption that a music festival in 2020 is intrinsically sexist when music festivals tend to be run by contemporary youngish people a lot of which would include women i just it just seemed i know i just seemed it just seems odd to me that that would be that would actually be the case considering like you said that there are options and viable options for headlining festivals that have 
women band members or, or women uh, women front men and things like that. And again, the rest of the lineup hasn't come out yet, so it's hard to say. But also, you've, you're supposed to pick the festival based on availability and popularity. And if A, the bands that you ask are not available, or B, they're not suitable for the lineup or suitable for the stage that you, you have the spot available, then that takes precedent. If you're doing this sort of like affirmative action where you're forcing female-led bands in simply to keep a gender balance in your festival, then you're probably not still putting together the best festival you can given the resources and options that you have. I'm not saying that there aren't female-fronted bands that don't deserve to be on there. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's I'm saying that when you combine the availability and the actual machinations of running a festival, sometimes you don't get every band <laughs> that you're able to get. Sometimes um, the slot that you have is not suited to the size of a band. Um, this conversation came up before with Download Festival, which is an even more male-dominated music industry. So it is, I, it's a it different is. kettle of fish. Um, but... There just simply aren't in metal, for example. There just simply aren't enough female-fronted metal bands that are capable of headlining a festival like Download, unless you really tried hard to make Nightwish really popular. There just aren't. Um, and in in at least in contemporary music, there's more options. I mean, Reading and Leeds could have at least you know you could hire Billy Eilish. You could do mate. Reading and Leeds could put Lady Gaga on there. It would be a shock, would it? Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? Or Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa. Yeah, abso- absolutely. There are options. Um, uh, there are a plethora of options for, for, for a group like this. But I don't think that, I, I just don't believe for a second that Red and Leeds organisers got in a room together and directly um, excluded women from the, from the stuff. I just really think it's sometimes that the way that the nature of the festival is and the way that things play out. Now, obviously, there's an unfortunate consistency, but it's also a lot of rock, a lot of rock bands, a lot of indie bands are male-led. It just, it just is. It's like there are certain industries that are male dominated. It, it, my industry in teaching is female dominated. If you, if you, if you put every teacher in, 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 in my school in a hat and just stuck your hand in and whirled the hat around and pulled out a name, there's like a probably seven out of 10 chance it's going to be a female member of staff. That's just, the, that's just the numbers of people that end up in teaching. That's just the way that it is. And in rock and indie bands and metal acts, obviously, that is probably about a similar statistic. It just is the nature of the industry. So I think rather than complaining that Reading and Leeds aren't propagating female-led acts all of the time, we should actually attack this from a grassroots issue and wondering why females and women and young girls aren't starting bands when they love that music. What's stopping them from starting bands and getting into band practice and things like that? Because that's the issues that we face because then we don't end up with the amount of female bands to choose from where there being consistent female presence on a photo poster like Reginald Leeds. I just think attacking the end product without considering the options that lead to that appears to be um, limited or reductive in my viewpoint. Well, I understand where your viewpoint comes from. And like I said, for me, it is somewhat of a, of a worrying... For, for me, I find it somewhat of a worrying, continuous issue that, you know, you, you look on a lot of, on a lot of years... And like you said, yes, the yes, obviously, alternative music specifically uh, is generally uh, male dominated, especially at the highest, most popular end. Like you, you made a great point. Really, off the top of my head, Sam, the only female-led band I could think that would have the size to headline download is Paramore. Evanescence could not. They, they, they just they might headline no. the second stage, but they couldn't headline Nightwish. 
they could probably third or sub-headline download, but I don't. That under no circumstances, I think they could headline. And if they did, could you even that. get No Doubt? Do you think even for nineties nostalgia, could No Doubt and Gwen Stefani come back? And that—that's literally me looking, thinking about yeah. a band that was even remotely big enough. Do you know what I mean? Black yeah. Eyed Peas, maybe if you count Fergie. Yeah, I mean, now, in terms of younger up-and-coming female-led artists, there's fucking. There's loads of them. Yeah, loads. Employed, employed loads. to serve, Nova Twins, um, Muncy Girls, uh, Milk Teeth, although Milk Teeth have actually just recently split up, which was pretty gutting. But there, there is, like, this, there is a real, like, movement yeah. and, and play. Click I Trip mean, would be great at Reading and Leeds. Mate, Click Trip would be sick. Click Trip would be fucking brilliant at Reading and Leeds. That, they, they Perfect are, band for that, uh, uh, for that arena. I, I think they've got so much fucking absurdly high potential. Uh, I think, you know, uh, bands like Dream State, I think they've got, you know, and, yeah, you know whether, sure. whether, whether they ever reach headline status is another thing. But, you know, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, they'll, I've got no doubt they will be continuously a sizable band for their entire career. So there is, there is this uh, sector of female-led uh, groups moving through, which is fucking great. But in terms of at the headline end, especially for download, it's particularly thin. Now, like you said, for Reading Leeds, that book is much more open. Mm-hmm. I could have asked Taylor Swift, but no, we don't they, know. They could have asked Taylor Swift. New album yeah. and everything, but she might consider herself too big for Reading Leeds, which yeah. I would probably accept. He's yeah, massive. Yeah. yeah, she's absurdly huge. And like I said, for me personally, I think it's, it's a worrying trend. However... Because we will never know the behind-the-scenes discussions of booking, for me, it's very difficult to, to point a finger and point blame because, like you say, prove to me they didn't try and get Dua Lipa or that they didn't try and get Lady Gaga or Billie Eilish or Florence and the Machine. It can't be proven. Now, if, I ha- if you said to me, what do you think's happened? I am aware that Catfish and the Bottle Men are an arena-sized band. I, if you said to me, what's the one act on there that you think, oh, fuck, some, so-and-so said no, who else we got? I think Catfish and the Bottom End would be that band, personally. And then that I, is think, I think, yeah, it's so-and-so said no times four, and then Catfish <laughs> and the Bottom End. No, again, please, I, I am not fully aware of, of their real status. They're not a band that I'm interested in or, or listen to, really. So, I don't, you know, whether, whether that's fair coming from me, I don't know. But looking at that line, Stormzy is absolutely huge. So, that you know, I suppose he, he selects himself. Same for Palestine, same for Disclosure. Liam Gallagher, please, hello, it's fucking Liam Gallagher. Queens of Stone Age, massive legacy after Reading Leeds. Catfish on the bottom end do kind of stick out on this, on this list. So, yeah. I, 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 liked, I would like to think that they approached Billie Eilish. She couldn't. And Catfish and the Bottom End is where they ended up. Into, because it was six headline slots and they didn't go for, for one woman or at least what, you know, female front. Seems crazy, doesn't it? It does. Seems it, crazy. It, it do, considering the wealth of options available to Reading and Leeds, like they're, they're not, it's not a tech metal festival. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like they, they've yeah, got yeah. Such, it's such a vast array of options to Reading and Leeds. They, they, you know, I hope they at least pursued one woman to, to be on this list and that obviously you know a few said no and here we are at Catfish in the bottom end regardless uh, this is the lineup that speaks to us so far the least 
I don't necessarily see that as a troubling sign for our industry. That I just think this happens to be uh, the, the stumbling block that uh, Le- Reading Leeds have landed upon. Like, mate, if I'd have told you in 2015 yeah. Metallica are headlining fucking Leeds, you would not have believed me for a second. They, head- they headlined it between Mumford and Sons and Libertines. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> I don't think this is to say that, oh, this means that fucking... Reading Leeds or Festival Republic in, in a larger scale think that alternative music is boring or dying. I just think that this happens to be how the, how the dice have landed on this specific year. It does still sting me, Sam, that we didn't get to see fucking Rage Against the Machine, man. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is, you've got to think as well, this is the product of the weirdest year in all time, like modern history, isn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah. And that's obviously, play, that's obviously played an impact on, too. Of course. The selection and availability of certain bands. And things like that. So maybe you give Red and the Leeds a bit of a pass because they're just essentially like everybody else is kind of scrambling for normality, and they've uh, they've landed on just whatever they can put together. At least that's the excuse I'm making for. If this was Plan A, we've got problems um, for some of these bands. But I, I can accept that it's um, been a difficult situation to put together a a festival lineup when literally nobody knows what the next couple of months is going to hold, let alone what we're going to be able to do in 2021. So yeah, I, it does seem, I agree with you finally that the message is, it is kind of absurd that there isn't a female headliner in, in all of this. Um, because we're not like you said, like, like we both said, we're not talking about like metal where the, the, the well is so very few with, with female fronted bands, but Overall, overall, I, I'm not going to be attending this. And if this is a sign of things to come, then Redden and Leeds is, me, and me have, have split apart in terms of our tastes. And that's perfectly fine. I think the point you made is a great place to leave this chat, actually. If this was plan A, holy shit, I'm worried. I'm hoping that this, what we're looking at here, is plan B. Yeah, yeah. On something more positive, Sam, a new Bring Me The Horizon track. Uh, it was, features Youngblood, mm-hmm. and it is called Obey. Now, there's still not been any real kind of announcement of a new album or when it's coming out, but with the existence of both this and Parasite Eve and the videos that Bring Me was sharing from the studio a few months ago, you would assume that we this is all a precursor to yet another new piece of Bring Me The Horizon music. Now, they released Ammo in in the the early part of 2019. They then released that very strange, and we never actually uh, spoke about it in terms of a review. They released that very strange EP, music to listen to, to dance to, to, and then all these other uh, adjectives and verbs to listen to music to. It was really strange. <laughs> um, we never actually reviewed that, but they released that at the back end of 2019, or either at the back end of 2019 or at the early stage of 2020 as well. And they were looking at potentially, you know, an imminent announcement of another new record. So we're in a real creative hotspot for Bring Me The Horizon. They're very much on the tip of everyone's tongue. I am astonished, by the way. They're not one of the names headlining Red and Leeds, but we're not going to go back into that chat. Um, Sam, this song's great. It really, really is. It really, really is. And I want to just say that it's not great just because it's heavy. I'm not no. that, that that sort of single tracked and the moment I hear a guitar, I'm convinced that it's amazing. Um, it's good because it's good. Um, it's it's groovy. It's well-written. It's, it's really nicely pieced together. The chorus is really, really big. I think Youngblood appears to be in there predominantly to attract a different kind of audience. I don't actually think he adds... A great deal. No, but he doesn't. Um, like the, the, the song doesn't change for him. You know, when typically you got 
like a, a um a featurette and there's the song nature of the song changes or the riff changes to sort of sort of bring this person in that hasn't happened and it certainly has been the same impact that they had when they had danny filth um on on ammo i thought that was that was a really good addition but Youngblood doesn't really add a great deal um, just in terms of the song. But the actual song itself is terrific. It highlights a, I wouldn't say welcome return to heaviness for, for Brimby because they've been incredibly successful without it. But from a personal note, I'm glad to hear this level of music again from a band that had seemingly struck it off the idea of it playing in general. For a couple of years, it seemed like that was very much in the rearview window. I remember us having conversations where it seemed, this is the band that bring me on now, and if you're crying out for There Is A Hell or Sepaternal stuff, that's them over and done with. Um, or even Suicide Season, obviously, Count Your Blessings, that's a, that's a bygone era, definitely. But this is um, a refreshing um, return to that, and it doesn't feel old or stale. And reminds me once again, like we've had this conversation a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, how Brimby the Horizon um, really are one of the most diversive and free-thinking and brave and ambitious bands that we have in our industry. And I, for one, are incredibly glad that this is the direction I happen to have taken this time round. I mean, let's just quickly run through the stylistic identity of Brimby the Horizon over there for, <laughs> uh, okay. uh, over their 14 year period. They've been deathcore metal, metal, uh, sorry. They've been deathcore metalcore. They've been contemporary metal. They've been rock and they've been synth pop. And now they're moving back to contemporary rock. I mean, uh, fuck me, mate, the balls on this band. They're, they're really, they, they really should be lauded for their, their musical bravery. I mean, mate, you look at pieces of ammo. You, you remember Nihilist Blues on ammo. It's like this kind yeah, of yeah. tech pop track. And then you've got tracks like Wonderful Life, Sugar, Honey, Ice and Tea on there. Tracks like uh, Mother Tongue, which is straight up pop. And now we've got to the point, you know, Parasite Eve. I love that song. Really heavy, like really heavy, mm-hmm. thick rock tune. Ludens, which is on the Death Stranding soundtrack. Done with um, Hideo Kojima, obviously. I mean, that just hooked me straight away. Hello. Brilliant. Great song as well. Great song as well. And then this, another great song. Uh, uh, great to see Lee Malia taking prominence again, who I felt a bit sorry for on Ammo, because outside of Struggle Hunting Ice and Tea, I remember me and you saying, he's not really doing much, is he? <laughs> you know? No. Because uh, no, of, di- of the direction they're taking. However, Parasite, even though Bay is much more at the, at the uh, forefront, I think this is fucking great. I think Bring Me a fucking National Treasures in terms of music. I think they're fucking brilliant. Uh, I wasn't massive on Ammo when I first heard it. I think when we reviewed it, I, I, like, I give it a six. That's one of the reviews that I regret most that we've done here. Uh, it was really short-sighted of me that was. I'm, I'm happy to say that now. Ended up in my honourable mentions in the great in our uh, album of the year chat. And I, I think the Brimia just this multi-pronged, seven-headed beast that can just go in any direction and they're going to be great at it. Um, considering all these sides getting pissed thrown at him 12 years ago, he, he has grown into the front man of the fucking decade in terms of new contemporary rock and metal. Completely agreed. Um, the band in general have evolved into um, alternative music's greatest British success over the last 15 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. In, term, in terms of size and transcendence. And this is the sad thing is that really us as rock and metal fans should be like proud and admiring bring me and glad for their existence not just because they've, they've written great music but also because they've they've ushered in a um a golden era of british metal and at times or oh, british contemporary rock music 
and led the way for shining a spotlight upon this sort of music. And it's a success story, like just simply put. And people might think they've they've sold out, but actually at the time to, to go in the direction that they did to essentially turn their back momentarily on on the, the, the type of music that got them there in the first place was an incredibly brave move that could have really sunk them. Yeah. And they've 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 really they've really risen uh, risen to the challenge of the things I've been able to do. And like 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 you've said there, they're multi pronged, multifaceted. Uh, a seven headed beast is a nice way of looking at it because they're literally able to um, write whatever music they choose to write. And I think they'd have there's so much talent in that band. They have such great success. And again, I, whether it's whether it's Malia or the other members of the band that actually write these hooks. Bring, or whether it's Ollie Sykes himself writing all the courses the band for the music around him, I don't know. But Bring Me always have an incredible ability to whatever genre they choose is to make it compelling, make it engaging, and um, just infiltrate with their music this sort of toxicity of sort of pop sensibility and um, to sort of bring you in and consistently keep you hooked. It's not just heavy for the sake of it. It really always has this expansive very big feel. You can immediately tell that it's bringing me the horizon. And I think, um, I think that's terrific. And obviously I've been critical of them before. I was very critical of that's the spirit the first time it came out. And in the same way that you took a while with ammo, I took a while with that's the spirit. Um, I could appreciate the, the move for it. It just wasn't for me at that time. Ammo I was immediately admirable of in the moment in terms of an ambitious project. Um, and they're following that up again with another set of ambitious projects because it's, to go back to metal after this or back to this contemporary heavy heavy music is almost as brave as abandon it in the first place. And I, I've got a great deal of respect for Brimby the Rise and who have ushered in a an era that they they spearhead that includes like While She Sleeps and Architects and a lot of other northern alternative music acts um, across the country. So I I agree with you. National Treasures is, is to be fair, is a fair is a fair cop. Over the last fifteen years, few bands have done more for metal or more as a result of being a metal band previously than bring me the horizon national treasures and doing things for metal is an absolutely brilliant place for us to pick up this next topic sam we usually announce what the next uh, uh, entry in our greatest metal of all time list would be at the end of this episode because it would then be the next episode where we record this however indeed because of lack of albums available to us this week that I was really interested in having a chat about, Sam. I will now let you reveal the fifth greatest metal album of all time. It is Black Sabbath's self-titled debut album, Black Sabbath. Kind of annoying, Sam, that we're doing this on episode 49 because this album's 50 years old and our next episode would have been episode 50. <laughs> so I'm going to put <laughs> my OCD nice to the side. I'm going to put my OCD to the side for a quick moment here. <laughs> um, mate, released on Friday the 13th of February 1970. Of course, it was released mm-hmm. on a Friday the 13th. Uh, run through some stats. Um, finished eighth in the UK charts. Went on to sell about 100,000 copies. Sold a million copies in America. Dude, those guys fucking love Ozzy Osbourne, don't they? America adores Ozzy Osbourne. Obviously, Ozzy Osbourne is just a part of Black Sabbath here. But even in terms of Ozzy Osbourne as a solo artist, absolutely astronomically huge in America. Obviously, still huge Mm. in the UK, but in America, something about the US just adores something that anything that Ozzy Osbourne is a part of. Sam, I mean, 
we really are talking about the beginning here, aren't we? Oh yeah, this is the this is the genesis of heavy metal, and if you, it's it's one of the few undebatable truths about metal. Yeah, we can argue to the cows come home about a variety of stuff. What is metal? What isn't metal? When did various subgenres start? Um, I remember you write an article a couple of weeks ago about metal coming. You could have a deb- debate for hours about where it actually originated from yeah. and have different ideas where we agree somewhere in the middle. Same with thrash metal. Some people say it's killer more. Some people say it started even before then with other bands. Same with new wave, but metal in general, heavy metal, what big, what came before everything else? It's pre Sabbath and post Sabbath. And this album, this, this opening track, heavy metal begins the moment this album's press play. That is it. That is the start. The moment you hear the rainfall, the moment you hear the thunder, the moment that riff kicks in, heavy metal began. This is the absolute lone truth about heavy metal, a, a genre shrouded in mystery and enigma. This is one of the few consistent truths that heavy metal began here, without a doubt. There's loads we could talk about here before we go into the actual album, but I am just curious... What's your dad think of this album? He loves Sabbath. Did, is your dad talk much about this album in terms of, I mean, how old would your dad have been in 1970? Uh, seven. Seven. Right, okay. So, obviously, its impact immediately wouldn't have resonated with your dad, I no. assume. But has he spoken no. to you? Because your dad's such a music uh, buff. Does he? Has he spoken to you much about growing up and being like 18 and then going backwards and finding this. Yeah. So what, what, what my old man did is he started getting into heavy metal after getting into punk. So you got to think he was born in 63. He was 14 when the sex pistols released, um, never mind the bollocks, which I think is the perfect, uh, perfect age to, to live in the age of punk, yeah, 14 yeah. years old. Yeah, and punk yeah. begins is, is just the perfect. So we, he got heavily into that. And then when punk died around 1979, then he started getting into ACDC and then obviously working his way to Sabbath. Um, every conversation I've had with him about Sabbath is that he definitely felt that they were the ushering of a different era. And for, for those guys, there was definitely a gap, a barrier that was emerging between, what was being called old school metal fans, old school hard rock fans that became, they were called metal fans at the time, but what became hard rock fans. So fans are like, you know, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, um, things like that. And then Black Sabbath were like the dark little brother um, alongside eventually sort of later bands like sort of Judas Priest and stuff like that. But for a five year period, Black Sabbath were the only option <laughs> in terms of like, if you were into the darker side of metal and stuff and they were just different. Um, it's just a, it's just a great album. It's just a, it's a great heavy metal album, and, and it's not that's favorite. I think his favorite was um, was uh, Heaven and Hell. I think actually with Dio. Interesting, um, but yeah, um, but in terms of in terms of this impact, it was for all, for everyone that was a rock fan, including my dad at the time. It was just an immediate change um, that presented itself um, with Sabbath, and that's that's what's happened here. That's what's happened here. It, it is if you listen to anything that came out in like not even just a one year, not even just in nineteen seventy, like the two years leading up to nineteen seventy, and like two years after nineteen seventy, you can go even further. I don't think another band even sounded in the in the region of Sabbath until the mid seventies onwards, if that. Like they were just on their own on an island writing this sort of stuff. I think Sam. 
knowing that all four members grew up in Birmingham post Second World War, and as Osborne describes in his autobiography, which I will mention a few times during during this chat, as this really grey, low income, really miserable area. I don't think this album could have been written in any other city in the world. No, I completely agree. And what I mean by that is just how Ozzy describes post-war Birmingham is this really difficult, really like the, the whole concept of living in Birmingham at this time sounded like, oh yeah, if you could leave school at 15 and just work in that factory for the next 50 years, that'd be great, mate. Uh, and don't aspire to be any, don't aspire to be anything else because there's nothing else anyway. There's the factory, there's the pub, and there's your bed, and that's your life. And enjoy what you can of it. Do you know what I mean? So for mm-hmm. so for such a dark, dreary, unusual concept, it had to come out of a place of sorrow, which Birmingham absolutely sounds like. This could not have been written in Surrey. Do you know what I mean? No, or California, or well, any yeah, Western no. American city. Absolutely, um, you, you know. So it 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 needed to come from this, and that, and that's always been when you when you look at and you watch any of the sort of documentaries about it, any of the interviews is they were, they wrote music that reflected the their times and their situation, and like you said, the 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 riffs and the harshness of the music absolutely represented or is reflective of the polluted factory laden dickensian atmosphere that was that was prevalent in post second world war aston and birmingham i mean this this sounds like the clattering of machinery yeah i mean if 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 you didn't know that steppenwolf in i think it was late 60s early 70s coined the phrase heavy metal thunder to describe a motorbike which then eventually led to the naming of the genre you would assume that heavy metal came from the sound of factories rather than anything else because the, the, the instruments here seem to perfectly match um, the mood and the vibe of Birmingham at the time. Not to mention the, the, the opening of this album beginning with rainfall and thunder and that sort of stuff. It just, that pathetic fallacy completely matches the atmosphere of the city and upbringing that they had. Heavy metal could only be a working class genre as well. Yeah, like it is. Sim- it is simply it's grown beyond that, and I'm not saying that there aren't middle class metal bands because there are, um, but it had to begin a genre for the underdog. Had to begin being written by an actual underdog, and Tony Army and Ozzy Osbourne and 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 the rest of those boys were exactly the perfect emissaries for that sort of genre. It re- it really could have only happened um, somewhere like that or in a situation like that. I think it would be appropriate to talk about the state of music in general at this point, because Mm. usually, Sam, so far during this top 20, and obviously even more so in the top 10, we've had more time to go even further in detail. We talk about where metal was and what bands are really popular and what wasn't popular anymore, how certain things have changed. We talk about things prior to the record and how this record changed metal. However, Obviously, before this record, there is no such thing to talk about, though that has been disputed because whether... See, there are some that would say whether Sabbath actually invented metal is to be debated because of the existence of the likes of uh, Cream and Iron Butterfly. Do, oh, do come you, on. Do, do you think it's fairer to say 
that this album was certainly then the first album that managed to reach audiences en masse with the concept of metal. Uh, yes and no. I, I don't, I've never ever considered Cream a heavy metal band. I've never considered Iron Butterfly a heavy metal band. Um, it is... It is the is the equivalent of saying that. Um, well, Isaac 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 Newton wouldn't have considered relativity without. Oh, sorry, uh, Albert Einstein would have considered relativity because well, Isaac Newton invented gravity and the and and, and that scientific theory and led to the other. Well, then they're completely different ideas of the branch of science to begin with, and you're assuming that one thing would have happened and then that immediately connects to the next thing. I I don't. I'm, I'm not obviously naive to think that the heavy metal apple fell onto Tony Army's head from just a random tree in the sky. And I'm, and I'm because rock and roll was a thing and blues was a thing, but this, this band's departure from blues based rock and roll music. Now the year before 1970 was 1969 and 1969 was the summer of love. And the summer of love was folk music and pop music and literally the whole idea of positivity and flower power and all this sort of stuff. And that was the cultural zeitgeist at the time. In 1970, the big span of the planet was still the Beatles. They'd just brought out Let It Be. Like, this is a different world. And Iron Butterfly playing some blue songs with some distortion is not at all what Black Sabbath did later in, in, in 1970. I'm not saying that the Black Sabbath didn't, use distortion or, or or maybe jump from there and i'm not saying that they weren't big blues fans because they actually became they're a blues fan blues band for a bit before they turned into black sabbath but they named themselves black sabbath because they deliberately wanted to write scary music after seeing the poster of a horror film called black sabbath they then decided to after naming themselves that decided to write songs that were deliberately frightening which i don't think anybody else had done at that point at all deliberately write songs that to, to intimidate an audience that had literally never happened and then Tony Iommi's finger accident led him to having to simplify the guitar chords. I'm going to ask to you to expand thing. on that. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to expand on that in gratitude. So all these things, all these things coalesce together to make this departure. If none of those things had happened, the poster, the finger accident, and the fact that they lived in Birmingham, heavy metal wouldn't have happened because of Iron Butterfly or Blue Cheer. I'm telling you that wouldn't have happened the other three things had to happen for Black Sabbath to be formed and make this grand departure because I really can't exaggerate how different the world was from 1969 when everyone was literally in a different plane of existence in terms of the way that we thought about music and what it could do to what Black Sabbath were doing in 1970. Um, it, I just, I'm not saying that they didn't take something from my own butterfly and, and cream, but bloody hell, it's a, it's a departure. It's an absolute well, departure. Well, let's talk about some of the massive artists of the 60s. We're talking the Beatles, um, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, uh, the Beach Boys, uh, yeah. uh, Ray Charles. Janice, Ray Janice Charles, Joplin, you, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Bob Dylan, of course, as well. Bob Dylan. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and none, of, none of these. Like, the heaviest, the heaviest artist that we've listed out of that lot is Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And you can listen to like, Purple Haze. And that's, that's blues. That's influenced Guns N' Roses rather than anybody else. Bob Dylan, folk artist. The Beatles, a pop artist. Um, 
this is this is still a couple of years before I think the break of ABBA and these sort of bands. Man, like music was just a different world. There was nothing like this. Fleetwood Mac had only been around for a couple of years, and they were still Peter Green writing like sort of like blues tunes and stuff like that. Um, I mean, distortion wasn't even used in a, using an actual song until 1964. So this is like less than a decade after the use of an electric guitar to make actual pop, actual actual rock music. Led Zeppelin's first album didn't come out until 1971. I don't think this is like. I'm sorry, completely. I think it might be the, it might be late sixties. Actually, that might be a mistake on my part. But it, we're talking about rock music. Is rock music in general is at the the absolute toddler stage in terms of its development. For Sabbath to make this departure this early is an incredible, incredible leap. They were actually originally a blues cover band. Uh, Sabbath, yeah. yeah. And they previously were called Earth, and they were called something else before that. Something like the the, the Talker Band, or something along those lines. Uh, yeah, they, they, yeah. they had like a, a name, and I, I believe, again, I'm remembering from what I've read from the autobiography, I believe they'd played a couple of shows, and a few of the promoters, like, what the fuck is your name? Change it to something simpler, please. They came up with Earth, and then, uh, like you said, believe it was either Bill Ward or Geezer Butler, that had seen that Italian poster for for a film and had gone and spoke about spoke about it, and he said he'd seen he had like a nightmare where he, he thought he'd seen like a dark haired like really uh, black clothed woman standing at the end of the bed. Uh, funnily enough, said woman appears on the album cover, which we're going to talk about the album cover as well. Um, so it, it's it's fascinating that. They were a blues cover band, and I personally think we're not going to go into the internet, the album just yet. But I, I, I think that obviously blues runs right through the spine of this album. Yeah. But actually, actually, whether it was somewhat accidental that they would end up creating this genre, obviously that's a discussion for another time. But I do think it's interesting that they were previously a blues band before this. However, now Sam. For the people at home who don't know this, I'll like you because you know the real internet, the story, and you know really what it would mean. I would like you to run through the story of Tony Iommi's factory accident and uh, the coast, the concept of the quote-unquote invention of the power cord. Yeah, no problem. They were called Polka Talk, by the way. Polka Talk, that was it. Uh, it was like a, they had like a slide guitar and a saxophonist. Can you imagine yeah. that? Yeah, Osborne? yeah, <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> Like, <laughs> anyway, to start a war pig with the sax, I'd be into it. Anyway, um, so Tony Army worked in a factory where essentially, this is like 1969, uh, 1968, where um, they had like, you, you put metal sheets up into a blade and you use the blade to shave down the metal sheets. And one day, because of course, why would they have health and safety? It's late 60s Birmingham. And one day he put his fingers way too close to the blade and he cut the tips of his fingers off. Um, not enough to actually lose the dexterity, thank God, um, but enough to actually shave the tops off. So he actually, you know, when you, if you put your fingers on a guitar, Chris, especially if you're not a guitar player or if you've not been playing for a while, the, the actual strings are quite painful on the tips of your fingers. So if you take away that protective layer of skin, that would be incredibly painful. Um, because of that, when you play a guitar chord, a typical guitar chord, the classic guitar chords tend to involve two to four fingers, 
right? So a G chord involves your index finger, your middle finger, your wedding ring finger, and your little finger, all are differently arranged around the guitar neck. Now, because Tony Iommi's fingers were in a state and he couldn't cover them with plasters because that would affect his guitar playing, what he did was use fairy liquid bottles as fingertip covers, um, which I... Which I found out like made me maybe cringe at the idea. Can you imagine getting the soap in the tips of your fingers, and which that would sting and hurt? Um, but he used to put the fairy liquid bottles on the tips of his fingers, and because it would hurt to play these chords that involved all of his fingers at all the times, he invented a way or developed a way to simplify the chords, and he'd play it with two fingers instead. So the power chord typically involves your index finger and either your ring finger or your pinky finger. And what it does is your index finger plays the root note of the chord, which is, for example, if it's a G chord, the root note is the main note of that chord, so the G. And also your little finger would play the octave above it, which is the, the string below and two frets across. Um, by playing those together, you still get the sound of the chord, but it's a simpler sound. It's a, a not a lighter sound, it's like a heavier, more punchy sound and became the basis of pretty much every single Black Sabbath song later. And also the basis of famous songs like Black Sabbath, but also the basis of songs like Paranoid, which is an E minor power chord played with seven and nine. Just those, that simplicity not only opened it up for, for the different sounds, but also made it so incredibly easy for new guitarists to learn classic heavy metal songs. And that's why metal became the calling card for early guitarists and really guitarists later. And why we have such great riffs where the sounds are so simple. Um, if you reverse the original paranoid down, 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 and put your pinky on the nine where the, the seven would be for paranoid and reverse it. So paranoid is seven and nine, seven being on the A string and nine on the D string. If you reverse that and put nine on the A string and seven on the D string, and pick it out. That's Enter Sandman. Right. So, so that's how similar those ideas have, and that's how long they've transcended and, and survived. Where power chords are still for so many bands the true basis of 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 rock music and heavy metal music, and it all happened because of a factory accent. If he had not developed that way to play with his fingers, because his fingers were in pain, he may not have written the riffs that he had written and we might not have the heavy metal that we have. It really is a domino that has led to the, the entire development of a genre that we, now, that we now adore simply because of this accident. So interesting, that is. I remember the first time you told me that I was just, we were sitting in the pub and I was just like aghast at this news. <laughs> I just found it yeah, so it's, fascinating. It's crazy to think that without that small detail... There are Literally others, wouldn't have an entire genre. Like, it's mate, crazy. There are other small details as well, like this one that really fucking bars my mind. If there was ever... I don't know whether people at home or you personally believe in fate, but if there was ever, like, an argument that fate definitely must exist, it would, in my opinion, it would be this. Ozzy Osbourne got his dad to buy him a PI system in the late 60s. So, he, so he'd be more professional. He's got more chance of finding a band. And Ozzy Osbourne had been in a couple of bands that hadn't worked out. And he put a flyer up in a, around the town and it said, Ozzy Zig needs gig. I'm not sure whether you're already familiar with this story, Sam. Mm. 
Right. Well, I'll, I'll say it now just for people, the people yeah, at course, home that won't be. Uh, so he's got these followers of Ozzy Zigmeed's gig. He then gets into a few bands and it doesn't fucking work out and it's bullshit. And he goes round and he takes down all these flyers. He's like, I, 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 I give up on this. I, I'm not going to end up being, you know, a, a, a music star, a rock and roll star. This isn't working. Fuck it. I'll just get a standard factory job and I'll just work it out till I'm fucking 65 and I'll retire. Um, he forgot about one of them. He, he he left one up by accident in the mu- in a, a music store in Birmingham. Oh, I didn't know this. That's incredible. Two days later, there's a knock on his door. Right. He opens the door and fucking Bill Ward and Tony Iami. I think it, it was either Bill Ward or Geezer Butler or potentially, or potentially all three of them. Maybe it was Bill Ward, Geezer Butler. Because I'm going off memory from the autobiography here. Um, so it, it, Tony Iami was definitely there. And it was either one of Bill or Geezer. Anyway, they both turn up and they're like, oh, uh, you know, you've got a flyer up saying that you've got your own PA system and you're looking to form a band. And Ozzy was like, oh, yeah. And then Tony Iommi used to go to Ozzy Osbourne's school and Tony Iommi figured out who he was. He's like, I'm not fucking being in a band with this joker because Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> at school, Ozzy Osbourne at school, it's so honest to me, his autobiography is so fucking funny. He's talking about how the fact that like he always used to get, he'd get picked on a bit and like the, the fucking hard kids used to pick on him a bit. So he's like, I'd always act a clown all the time. So if you make the hard kids laugh, they'll fucking leave you alone. This is 1960s, remember. There's no such thing as like head of years. <laughs> that kind of thing that prevent bullying in the fucking 60s. The teachers were bullies yeah. in the 60s. You have to prevent bullying. Yeah, the, <laughs> so fucking, it's on you. the teachers are fucking beating the shit out of the in the sixties. Um, so yeah, you take the bullies. <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne is consistently being a fucking bell ending school all the time just to make the hard kids laugh. The Tony Army's like, I ain't fucking being in a band. He says on the doorstep in front of Ozzy's face, I ain't fucking being in a band with him. He's a mong. Like, he's a dick. Fuck this. I'm off. <laughs> like, and and like Ozzy he's tried a to mong. Get... <laughs> And Ozzy Osbourne, Ozzy Osbourne tried to convince him. He's like, fuck it, no, no, he's a dick. I don't have any band with him. Um, so then, then obviously Bill or Geezer are convincing him because he's like, mate, he's got his own PA system. Barely anyone's got their own PA system. And he eventually is like, fuck it, fine. We'll do a few fucking rehearsals. And it was, Ozzy says it's at this point that he started like behaving a bit around Tiami, Tiami, and being a bit more mature and that's where the rehearsals end up happening uh, and which which is where obviously they start becoming a blues uh, cover band and then eventually moves down the line to this but man if you if you with me i, I believe that fate exists and i think this is one of the greatest arguments for it he accidentally leaves one up in the fucking music store and it just so happens to be the store that fucking tony iami and fucking bill ward or geezer butler walking through on that day i mean the odds are just they're uncountable astronomical there is no number yeah. uh you know ozzy osbourne was born to be this fucking inventor and absolute like curator uh, of metal and I, I think that story is really awesome and really fascinating i, I completely agree actually I, I didn't know that story to that to that extent at all that's fantastic Tony Army was hard as fuck apparently in school so was it yeah apparently it's terrifying <laughs> yeah to be fair mate you look at Tony Army I, I look he at looks terrifying me. now yeah mate he's fucking scary bastard now and I out of interest I thought did they ever do a music video for the uh, the debut song Black Sabbath obviously they wouldn't have done one in 1970 but they must have done one later on 
for the song. Mate, Tanya Yami is fucking terrifying looking in this video. Uh, have you 100%. seen it? Have you seen Yeah, it? with the like, long fucking hair curtains and those. Yeah, yeah, fucking hell. Nightmare. Um, one of the most interesting things about this album, again, we haven't even got into the fucking music yet. This actually received a bit of a panning in terms of critical reception. Yeah. Yeah, like Cream But Worse, one reviewer called it. Yeah, yeah, that is actually Rowling Stone's Lester Bangs, who went on to say that, what you said, and a shook, despite the murky song titles and inane lyrics to saying like Vanilla Fudge playing, (laughs) (laughs) Vanilla Fudge paying doggerel tribute to Alistair Crowley. The album has nothing to do with, (laughs) the album has nothing to do with spiritualism, the occult, or anything much except stiff recitations of cream cliches. I mean, fucking hell. And then you've got a guy, a guy called Robert Criscow of the Village Voice. He called it bullshit necromancy and the worst of the counter... <laughs> <laughs> and the worst of the counterculture. Sam, is this a purely an example of how new stylistic Black Sabbath were and just the idea that some parts of the world weren't ready for it and therefore didn't quote unquote get it. I think so. I, I, I think, I think if that, that should be the basis of your argument for, well, how did if Black Sabbath still didn't invent heavy metal? They've just ripped it off. Well, if that were just a, a development from Iron Butterfly and Cream, wouldn't they have just got the same reviews that Iron Butterfly and Cream got, or at the very least well, nicer yes. one? Well, yes. Because there would have been something more rooted in similarity or familiarity for these reviewers. Um, because, yeah, if they're the only band who have done this and they're just this random upstart foursome from Birmingham and, and it, it's like this, it's, it's going to sound a bit off-putting. Um, but obviously with hindsight now, it kicked off an entire genre. But, yeah, I, new is often often derived, or derived when it first comes out. This is always the way. New is scary. And then when it develops popularity and gains interest and things like that, it, it, it kicks off. I mean, like the, the amount, of, amount of things that have come out and people have been, there's no way anyone's going to be interested in that. And within like years, it becomes like a regular part of our lives, like social media and stuff. Remember the whole, so you just post about the things that you're thinking all the time. Yeah. What's that about? Sort of argument for social media. And then like nine years later, it's just dominant in, in everybody's facet of, of, of being. And that's what's happened here with, with Black Sabbath. I could understand if you've listened to nothing but like light-hearted rock music and and blues and other stuff. Hearing Black Sabbath is gonna fit. Would feel like a novelty. Would feel like oh look at these spooky twats. Like what's going on over here? Them trying to fucking scare people and stuff like that. Um, and especially because the riffs were genuinely written to be jarring, especially the opening track, obviously, and deliberately off-putting and things like that it's easy to understand why reviewers would have thought, oh, what's this? Because it is so new and unfamiliar. But um, I, remember, I remember hearing it for the first time when I was like 11 or 12. And I just fell in, I just fell in love with it. So I, and the fact is, despite negative reviews like that, it charted at eight in the UK chart. Eight. Top Massive 10 debut then. album. Massive back Top then. 10 debut album. No, no music video, because there was no music videos. Um, no Top of the Pops appearance. Uh, barely any radio airplay, entirely new genre, and getting panned in literally every major rock publication, and it came eighth. Talk about talk about without using the pun, but striking a chord quite literally with the entire me- with the entire new metal fan base. 
people might not have logged it at the f- at first. The like the music elite and the journalists and stuff, which I understand, um, tend to be a bit snobby anyway. As some of the some of these writers, especially at that time, but it struck a chord somewhere, and it probably and it struck a chord with people like them, people that heard this music and and felt that it represented how what the life that was going on. I I completely agree. I completely agree with you. It, I imagine some of these writers have probably never written glowing articles about Black Sabbath's influence on music, or at the very least, courteously admitted that they were probably wrong at the time to criticise it the way that they did. Bullshit necromancy is a highlight, Sam. Imagine showing this guy fucking Dimmu Borgia. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'd be so in. Imagine when I'm watching like Behemoth. Yeah, or one of those like nineties early black metal bands or something like that. That's that's necromancy, bro. Let's let's go down there. But yeah, this is bands didn't write about the occult or nightmares. It just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. This is like a this is like a pre watershed era. This is not the nineteen sixties and seventies. Like this is this is not a time of like bravery and difficult song ideas and things like that. Which is not a world that people were used to. So I can understand. I mean, like, this is like, I think the exorcist came out in 1973 and people were like passing and people like passing out in the cinema when the exorcist came out, you watch the exorcist now and it's, it's not remotely scary because obviously it was just so desensitized. Um, but that's the world that they were living in. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a completely different one to the one that we now operate within. Another brilliant example of some people just, you know, not being ready for this type of music and therefore didn't quite get it. Ozzy Osbourne brings the album home on the day of release and he's like, you know, mom, dad, I've wrote, I'm on an album. I've got a look at this. I've got a vinyl here of an album that I am on. I've made. And obviously, you know, he plays it to his mom and dad and his dad, you know, Ozzy's all excited. His dad, his, his exact response was, Son, I don't mean to be like a twat, but what the fuck is this noise? Imagine showing him Napalm Death. <laughs> like, imagine showing him Scum by Napalm Death. <laughs> <laughs> At least it'd be over quickly for him. Is <laughs> <laughs> <Was> that it? <laughs> Did he sneeze? What happened? <laughs> well, again, mate, like this is Ozzy's dad, and he's like, what's this noise? Now, I, I think mm. that question, son, what is this noise? <laughs> yeah. is, that's, is, that's a dissertation on heavy metal that is the start yeah, like, I, I think that is one of the most interesting questions ever linked to metal ever because what is as, that noise? as I said Sam the depths and levels that metal would be taken to you listen back, we're going to start getting into the discussion of the actual album itself now. You get into, like, the ins and outs of this album. Of course, with the knowledge that we've got of metal now, 50 years later, this is actually really tame. Mm. So, even, so we consider this incredibly tame now. But 50 years yeah. ago, this was, 50 years ago, to Ozzy Osbourne's dad, this is like playing, putting Cannibal Corpse in his ear. This was. Yeah, yeah. Look, you've got to think what's Ozzy Osbourne's dad's remit of musical understanding. Yeah. What's Ozzy Osbourne's dad listening to when he gets home from work and he puts the radio on? Like the Almond Brothers. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like maybe a bit of the, a bit of the Beatles at a push. I mean, like, pe- pe- like this, is, this is still in the time when people thought that the Beatles were like, um, 
dangerous for society because they're encouraging teenagers to do crazy things like enjoy themselves and, and hang yeah. out with their friends and stuff like that. This is this is that world. So, like, yeah, like Beatles came out in like 1964, about really really popular, and people were like this is bad. This is a problem. Sabbath six years later, people must be thinking the sky was falling. Like, it's, it's astonishing to think about now. I can't even imagine the mindset that a 40 year old adult in 1970. I think if you're 40 you were nine years old when the second world war started like they just did this is a different entire generation and then hearing this you must have thought it started again recorded sam all in around about 12 hours uh, in studio uh so what you hear on the record was captured live i love that I think that's yeah, fucking. Too. I fucking i think it's fucking amazing obviously differences in finances back then you know, I'm sure we won't have to tell anyone <laughs> that uh, obviously studio time was very expensive, and I mean, Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath did have a label at the time, but they could only afford to buy these 12 hour sessions. So, for the, I think I, I haven't actually looked up who the producer of this album was actually, uh, which I, actually I'm surprised I didn't. That is actually something I, I forgot probably. Um, but I, I think whoever the producer was did an like an unbelievable job of capturing what this album is supposed to do in 12 hours bands have spent like six months in a studio and not managed to get really cross across what the thematic point of the album is this guy managed to capture the fucking beginning of metal in 12 hours amazing job unbelievable unbelievable unreal it really is it really is incredible it is incredible the only real effects added to the album, Sam, are what you've already alluded to, uh, the Towering Bell and Thunderstorm, yep. which opens up the song Black Sabbath, opening the album. Black Sabbath. Mm. You know, Sam, even now, as Ozzy comes in with the what is this that stands before me, on the, you know, the first lyric. Goosebumps, man. Mate, it is even... Now, I've said this album is, knowing what we know now about metal, is really quite tame now, but that is still... That's goosebumps. That's harrowing. That is. Yeah, I, I can. I completely agree. It's the the pathetic fallacy of the rain, and his. I think I actually think this is his best vocal performance. I love the, ah. I love his voice on this. I really believe that. Just this song, I think this is his peak of his vocals because the way that he stretches his voice out, and the way that he he really expands his range and does the the screaming and all this sort of stuff and the what is like he really drowns <laughs> yes. and really yeah that was my was your one impersonation stands before me it's it's <laughs> it's like brilliant absolutely brilliant um do you know about the the devil's triad in the riff or triad i think is the appropriate pronunciation do you know what this is mate i can't say i do please inform all right so the riff is three notes right yeah. That final riff, the one that's like hammered on, the one that really gets extended. Yeah. Is a note that was actually banned. Oh. Um, in, in like the 16th and 17th century. Right. Um, it was believed that if you played these three notes in order, I'm not exaggerating the medieval ages, if you played these three notes in order, it was believed to be like the devil's summoning song. I swear this is true. If you literally Google the devil's try, this is an actual thing. Uh, Black Sabbath, Tony Army heard this rumor. It was like, what note is it? <laughs> and, <love> uh, <laughs> and, and, and that's why they deliberately made it scary. It was supposed to be though when the three notes were played together, it was supposed to be such a demonic evil sound. that The devil would be summoned. Uh, it was like a band note. 
like you couldn't play it in, in front of people because they were that obviously superstitious and believed in like witches and things like that. Um, so that really played into that. So when, when Tony Obi found out this note, he combined it with the first two to make it that extra level of devilish. And you can hear it, can't you? It, yeah. It's that final note. It's that really, that third note is really sinister. And that really sets it off. That is the heavy metal note. I think it's like a C sharp minor, but I can't remember. But it's the combination of all those different three notes together that made that made this riff incredible. But I, I, I adore this. Um, um, six minutes, 17 seconds of just brilliant riff work. I think the drums are superb. Rather than Bill Ward choosing to play an actual beat, he plays these like distant sort of slow toms. Yeah, they're quite thin, really aren't they? Add... They're quite yeah, thin, the drums, like, but purposefully so. Really, yeah, really sporadic. It kind of set like, almost like he's trying to mimic the idea of like footprints or like oncoming people to sort of add to this level of tension. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it meshes lovely with the riff playing quiet and then kicking back in. And I think the crescendo of this song, that is heavy metal percussiveness encapsulated. Diamond Head would like to rip this off with the um, Am I Evil intro. Metallica have done stuff like this. I mean, like you can just pick parts. Of it. And that's the thing. Like we talk about Metallica and, and how they've influenced metal later. You can literally pick out moments of this song and just be like, oh yeah, that's that's that. Oh yeah, Motorhead took bits out of that. Oh yeah, Metallica type bits out of that. Oh yeah, this is this is that band, this is the other band. And I just think combined is just incredible riff incredible riff work. They could have I could have released this as a single and spawned the genre, really, because that's how impactful this particular song is. And I and I actually love that it's their self-titled song from their self-titled album from their self-titled release because they are heavy metal and this has become associated with, so associated with heavy metal. It's the heavy metal song from the heavy metal band that invented, invented heavy metal and it's that consistency going across it and I love that. But yeah, this is it's an incredible, incredible song of the time and like, and like you said, the moment I hear the, the lyrics and the voice and the, 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 the dark black shape with eyes of fire and all this sort of stuff, and the way they're screaming and kicking in, it's perfect. It is genuinely fantastic. I, I, I adore, I adore this song. It's heavy metal, heavy metal history in the making, like as it's happening. Saw so Ozzy Sam saying in an interview that he wasn't a massive fan of the being of the term of like heavy metal inventors because he felt like that put them in a category with bands like Motley Crue, Winger and Poison, uh, which obviously they say nothing like at all. Um, yeah. You know, when you look through Sabbath's work, I can see the point he's making there, because I think a lot of metal bands and the subgenres that would spin off metal, Sabbath actually say nothing like any of them. I think for a lot of Sabbath's work, I don't know whether you all agree or disagree with it, a lot of Sabbath's work that I've heard now, especially around the early and mid to late 70s, I, I think you would you could associate much more with hard rock than, than, yeah. any, than anything else. But do you think then that the concept of heavy metal inventors comes from the fact that Bands took a lot of elements of Sabbath and then refined them into something that we would then call metal. Do you think that's where it comes from more than the fact of Black Sabbath invented metal and look how much every band that now plays metal sounds like Sabbath? Because that isn't actually the case, is it? 
No, I think I think Black Sabbath invented heavy metal and then bands refined that and turned it to the other genres that we know about today. There were so many subsections of metal, obviously. Because you talk about Poison and Motley Crue. Well, they're glam metal, aren't they? Yeah. So that's a, that's a different iteration. But and I, th- I think Sa- Sabbath started heavy metal. And then from there, you can look to bands that became heavy metal bands later on as a result of Sabbath. Um, bands like Judas Priest, bands like um, Blue Oyster Cult, um, bands like that. Um, that's, it's hard rock, but there's an edge because if you listen to Deep Purple and you listen to Sabbath, you listen to Led Zeppelin, then listen to Sabbath. There's a difference, and the the, the sinister element of Sabbath, that little twist, that whether it's the heaviness, whether it's the riff work, whether it's the simplicity of the riffs, or the style of the percussion, the removal of its way from blues, it's different. It's noticeably different. And that is what sets them apart. And that's why that is that that's the line in the sand between hard rock and heavy metal. It's 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 Sabbath. And everything heavier than Sabbath is metal, and everything lighter than Sabbath is hard rock. The thing is, is because Sabbath iron is is also because it's the beginning, it's also the closest thing to hard rock. Because it's the first departure away from it. And then everything else became heavier. Because metal has always been this way. It's been a competition who can be darker, who can be heavier, who can be faster. And every couple of years, the extremities are stretched out, aren't they? Like 10 years ago, you couldn't listen to a band like Black Tongue um, or Dealer or Alpha Wolf or something like that because we we were in a position where the heaviest thing were like Early Bring Me The Horizon and Amity Affliction and stuff like that. And 10 years before that, you're listening to like Machine Head. And now Machine Head for us... (laughs) says how demonic we are. Machine Head for us is fairly light in comparison to some of the stuff that we, we, we listen to on a regular basis. Because uh, every, every couple of years, metal moves away. So I think Black Sabbath is absolutely heavy metal, but I agree with your assertion that it's the closest thing to hard rock because at the time of its release, it was the first departure away from it. It was the first step away. But it is definitely absolutely different. And by the time we got to yeah. the 80s with like Motley Crue and stuff like that, we're talking about different subsections of... One of the most, I don't think there's another, I don't know much about it, but I don't think there's another genre that can be divided into so many pieces like heavy metal. No, I don't, I don't, I don't maybe like, um, like EDM, maybe. Yeah. Because there's so yeah, many ele- subsections ele- and heavies. But yeah, no, other than that, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, so I, I think that they've started this divergence that's happened later. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a a line in the sand between Black Sabbath and everything else that came before it or around it that's definitely hard rock. I think, Sam, Tony Iommi becomes a guitar hero on Paranoid, but he starts staking his claim here on this album. Oh, 100%. Mate, the opening riff of Behind the Wall of Sleep, mate, you could even stretch that to indie rock. Like if you if you yeah. really if you isolate or isolate the opening riff of Behind the Wall of Sleep, mate, that that is indie rock there. Which I mean, the first time I heard this album, fucking blew me away. I was like, fucking hell, mate! Like this this is is like legitimate indie rock. And obviously, The Wizard comes before Behind the Wall of Sleep. But I did I did want to point that out there, mate. How sinister does the harmonica sound on The Wizard that Ozzy's playing? Yeah, it's- it kind of sounds like he's moving backwards and forward on the mic, doesn't it? Yeah. Like he's like he's sliding his fat like and but I also think it works really, really well. Like yeah. it, it works really well with the riff, you know what I mean? Like um and this is where the band still 
have some of their blues roots because it sounds a bit like a rambunctious sort of early Fleetwood Mac song. Um, and they've still kept some of their bluesy sensibilities. Um, this sounds like, like some yard, like heavier Yardbird stuff, but it's still got the beginning of like the Sabbath sort of bluesy groove shuffle that they, keep, they rotate to, um, to and from on, the, on the, the next couple of albums before they really went a bit darker and heavier. Um, but yeah, there's, 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 you can really link the roots of, of various genres or at least dabbles into various genres into this Sabbath album. Because I mean, you, we talk about the, the, the debut album, uh, the debut song, which is heavy metal, but you could also say that that's the first, people have called that the first ever doom metal song. Yeah. Because it, it's slow, thunderous sort of sound. And and like you said, this this blues hard rock combination was still relatively fresh in terms of its invention and development. So I, I completely agree that the the variety of of Sabbath that they're not just a heavy metal demonic band at all. And I, I agree with you that Tony Iommi became the guitar god definitely on 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 the Paranoid album because there were just some moments on there that are just timeless. But he, he absolutely has some incredible riff work on here. Incredible riff work. A lot of which is on Behind the Wall of Sleep. I love Tony Army on that song. He's fucking brilliant. It's, it's, incre- it's an incredible song, uh, especially when it's juxtaposed against pretty much everything else that's taking place on that album. Like Because um, Wizard and Nib are sort of like bluesy hard rock songs. Same with Wicked World and warning an evil woman. These are like classic sort of late sixties, early, early punches. And then obviously behind the wall of sleep is sort of juxtaposed within that. It, it shows, it shows the depth of them, um, depth of the versatility of the band. And like I said, I really love Ozzy Osbourne's voice on these early Sabbath albums. And I like the, I just like, the, I like the groove and the, um, like I'm reviewing it like it's a new album, but I, I do just like I just, I just like the groove and the feel of this album consistently. I think Bill Ward's a terrific drummer. I think Geezer Butler's an incredible bassist. He doesn't get enough credit at all for some of the bass lines on this, holding holding the band down considering it's just one guitarist. Um, but you can absolutely feel that Black Sabbath are here are inventing heavy metal at the, the start, but still their feet are still in a hard rock camp as well yeah. while they are stretching out. And you can hear that sort of first steps towards this exciting new genre that they absolutely capitalised on, like literally one year later by releasing their second album. This is this is the first, you know, this is the the moon landing for heavy metal. You know, that first great step. Um, but it's the combination of this and some absolutely terrific hard rock and blues songs that start confirming Sabbath as a really terrific, seriously impressive band. I I wanted to mention that because you you referred to it there, Geezer Butler is so important on this album. And again, another coincidence: this Geezer Butler was not a trained bassist, so what he would do was until he was a trained bassist, and on this album, he'd basically just follow Tony. Um, and mm-hmm. you can really hear, like, if there's one thing you would, you would, if you had to just use one word to describe the guitar sound of this album, you'd say thick, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely thick, and and sort of there's like a, an abrasive quality to it because it's almost like this, uh, especially on some of the chord sections, it's almost like a scratchy, 
type aggressive heart, uh, sort of harsh and aggressive sound. Um, but yeah, uh, there's there's a there's a real there's a real there's a real thickness. But I think Ge- Geezer Butler and Bill Ward, um, because like they had they had a level of groove to this band that keeps them interested and almost jaunty and slightly off kilter. Um, I remember I remember them saying they were trying to replace Bill Ward much later on that they would always get new drummers to try and play War Pigs off their second album because it was such an off-tempo song that the straight heavy metal drummer would really struggle with it. And that's what's happening here is that Black Sabbath have managed to rotate really between this this harder stuff but also maintain this, this musicality and groove. And I think that stems, as you mentioned earlier, um, from the fact that they performed it live. Uh, there's, that, yeah. there's a real energy to this band and this sound and there's a certain groove and jaunt and bop to it that can only be achieved when it's actually the four people in the room um, playing with each other. And I think that's, I think that's a terrific thing that really adds to the sound. If you'd have layered this and played it sort of meticulously, I don't think it would have had the same sort of feel to it at all, which might have taken out the, some of the fun as a listener. Cause I just think obviously it's, it's reputation for being deliberately creepy. He's pretty much isolated in that opening track. I think the rest of this is actually, genuinely quite light and enjoyable obviously for for the rest of us obviously it's 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 over time um but i i do think this is sort of like head nodding and enjoyable you can sing some of these riffs um tap your feet and sort of click your fingers along to some of this stuff there's a real groove and dance to it that i absolutely adore like stuff like evil woman and wicked world have just got a real a real groove and a bop to them i i, I and i absolutely love that i think Ozzy puts in a better performance on this album than some might give him credit for. I mean, we, me and you said, Sam, that I agree. Ozzy Osbourne, the vocalist, in a, in a vacuum, it would not be considered in terms of vocal qualities one of the top five vocalists in metal history. However, his persona absolutely puts him in there. In fact, it probably puts him in the top two or three. And But I think here... Uh, you know, I'm not massive on his vocals for Evil Woman, even that would be too. I think that is mostly because I'm not massive on that song anyway. But I think elsewhere, I think Fit for Purpose is probably the best way to describe Ozzy for early Sabbath because, you know, great greatest vocalist of, of his time in terms of purely in the vocal booth, no. But as we mentioned, that personality, that charisma, and that enig- enigmatic attitude that he puts into this album, no one else could have done this like Ozzy. That wail and like kind of creeping uh, scream that he puts through this record really adds to its overall feel, would you not say? I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, if you'd have picked a professional, smooth, sleek, well rounded, perfectly in time and in key vocalist this album would not have been that as successful it needed Ozzy's charisma and charisma and performance and fragility and vulnerability heavy metal in this era is just as much about sounding raw and unfettered as it is the actual musical quality and dexterity metal has almost gone away from that it's moved moved to a more I mean the standard musicianship now is just so high Um, but the rawness of this, the underclass underdog feel of the album and the band members is perfectly summarized by Ozzy Osbourne 
not being the perfect in key beautiful vocalist. Like if you if you got somebody like I'm trying to think of a great uh, vocalist from sort of like the early seventies, like a male vocalist or something like that. But if you if you got somebody that sounded smooth and crooning, like I meant like just somebody who sounded like a pop singer over the top of this, it just wouldn't have worked. You needed someone that sounded raw. You needed somebody that sounded vulnerable. You needed someone that when they sounded terrified, they actually sounded terrified. You needed someone that had this vulnerability and fragility to their vocals that also matches the rawness and the harshness of the sound, the looseness of the band and the percussive quality of the music. It needed that that crescendo, that crash, that that romp needed a, a vocalist that also matched that level of intensity and also difference to what had, what had preceded it where everything else was this plush wonderful pop music apart from sort of like you know folk music and things like that but that's a different conversation it needed Ozzy Osbourne so fit for purpose I think is an absolutely accurate statement and that's why Ozzy Osbourne perfectly suited Sabbath until obviously his exit and he obviously gave us sort of four or five of the more impactful early heavy metal releases we've had in in in, in history of the genre Great example of how fit for purpose he is, is on Sleeping Village for me, because that song is largely an instrumental, but he mm-hmm. just he just creeps across segments of the song every now and again that really add to its darkness and it's really like ethereal rain over here. Uh, I, I, get, I think that gives a perfect, perfect summary of what Ozzy brings this album. Just this, you know, Ozzy doesn't spend a massive amount of time on this. Obviously, you've got like a warning, which is like 10 minutes long, and that's about basically another like largely instrumental song. So, Ozzy doesn't actually spend a massive amount of time at the forefront of this album. And even the opening song, Black Sabbath, he kind of comes in and out, really, doesn't he? Yeah, but when he is here, the, the dark attitude that he puts over this record really, really kind of spellbinding and absolutely set this album up for what it was meant to be. And I I love how on Sleeping Village, the pattern change from the riff, from the opening uh, song returns, sorry, from the opening of the song returns right after the extended solo. I think that's, you know, really clever manipulation sound for its time. And then it blends straight mm-hmm. into Warning, which I don't know. I don't know whether that was being done a lot at this point. But for me, 1970 to pull off that kind of manipulation of of the album, I think it's fucking genius and warning, mate. I mean, I suppose I, you know, I'd give the floor to you to talk about Tony Army on that song. Was fuck me. Yeah, it's 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 an incredible sort of for first step for the band, sort of proving that their their the musical dexterity is is already. Um, relatively far beyond <laughs> what we'd experienced from most rock acts up until that point. Yeah. Um, there's, there's elements of progressive metal here. Like, right, the, the budding seeds of progressive metal, riff changes, yeah. transitions, returns, and so, extended solos um, just didn't exist to, the, to this sort of level. Um, and also, um, we'd never, we did not live in a world that was so reliant on the music um, pop music was obviously sweeping the sort of airways and uh, still does. It's a vocal led genre. It's a chorus led genre. Um, rock music started to change that, but only in small doses. Sabbath took a massive step towards centering their entire sound around the music and the depth of that music and all that sort of stuff. And that, that is found on warning. 
on on the on the riff work and the the nice little changes of tempo and transition and the extended passages that really really suit this song and really suit the genre and are a nice foreshadowing chris of many bands that we absolutely adore because more than any other band before um sabbath the power of the guitar riff the, the guitar is the central figure of this album it's the it's the hero of this of this film so to speak you know what i mean it's the central narrative figure the protagonist of this album is tony army's guitar rather than ozzy osbourne's vocals and i think that really is the heart of heavy metal spirit is the pair of the guitar riff and that really 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 truly begins i think here more than any other genre at any other moment and i think that is an entire credit to tony army who obviously gets the credit he deserves but at the same time, people forget how absolutely important he was at the time. I agree. Like, like we 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 talk about you know um, your Kirk Hammett's and Dimebag Darrells of the world, but this dude like invented like entire shit like, and just the, the combination of his riff work to his bluesy solos and the way that these songs moved and transitioned, and then to record these in the small amount of time that it was, and then within six months they're writing the second album and just off on their way. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. There is, there is nothing like the flurry of Sabbath songs in terms of the the, the popularity and um, prolific nature of them writing the stuff that followed afterwards. But yeah, I, I completely agree. This is some incredible early songwriting here that foreshadows so much about the genre that's developed today. I know that Wicked World closed out the album, but I actually haven't got really much more to add in terms of uh, the way this album has been penned and its impact. Um, so I, I will just finish off with saying that this album, I, I mentioned at the start that, you know, fear, you know, there is an argument to be had, you know, over a pub table about whether Cream or, you know, uh, Iron Butterfly really started metal, quote unquote. But in terms of metal, as I've as I've grown to love it, as the genre that sprouted from this, and then fifteen other leaves sprouted from the idea of metal, I credit my favourite type of music entirely to these four guys from Birmingham. Everything I love about my favourite type of music can be traced back to what you find on this record and as i mentioned this actually is a, a very much a time listen now compared to some of them as where metal has gone but and we've said this before you go backwards in like in the evolutionary steps like where it's from human to fish the fish that fucking learn to breathe on land if you use that if you use that from metal if you go from like we're going to be talking about the new Alpha Wolf record in, in three weeks. If you go from Alpha Wolf and keep going backwards, eventually you end up here. And for, for a band that sound like Alpha Wolf to have their thanks to be given to Black Sabbath, I think that sums up exactly what this album is. Um, thank fucking God for Tony Iommi's uh, finger accident, for Ozzy Osbourne for getting to take down a, a, a poster, for fucking... Um, Bill uh, Geezer Butler having a nightmare about a woman in a black cloak sat, stand at the end of his bed. Thank God for all of those absolute happy accidents. Thank God for this fucking album, dude. 
beautifully, beautifully said. Uh, thank God for mediocre Italian cinema. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah thank God for that as well. <laughs> um, but but yeah, this is this is a, it's a, it's a sensational album for its time, but also the absolute beginning of its era, the absolute first step on a 50-year-long journey that has spouted thousands of bands and millions of songs and festivals and cultures and movements and and, and seas of headbanging faces and black T-shirts and um, devilish lyrics and references to the occult and having to apologise to your parents for son whatever that noise is. And that all comes back to four blocks from Birmingham, factory fodder, rain, thunder, and a nightmare like you mentioned and that and those and those elements to come together to have brought us to this music that has brought so much joy that was deliberately written to bring misery and intimidation that has that has literally started the pathway for this genre and that is obviously why how could you have the greatest metal albums of all time this and not have this in the top five uh, this is the this is the album that literally started quite simply everything that has followed it um it's followed it since it is a landmark achievement and will has and can will continue to stand the test of time. Couldn't think of a better way to sum up the record, mate, and better way to end this episode of the Noise Podcast. That means, Sam, that next episode is going to be the big fucking 5-0 next Tuesday. Um, hopefully, the very exciting interview that I mentioned that I'm having on Thursday does actually go ahead because that would be a great way to sign off on episode 50 but if you're still listening thank you so much for doing so i hope you enjoyed that depiction of where metal really began with black sabbath self-titled album this also means that we have now approached mount rushmore territory of the greatest metal albums, greatest metal albums of all time remember that we're going to keep doing solo episodes and we have put chess pieces in motion for once we get to number one for that episode to be filmed now there's a few there's a few stars that need to align in the sky still yet for that to actually happen but we are working on that being the well obviously when you talk we our album of the year show last year was filmed but in terms of the new setting that we'd be filming in that would be our first filmed episode and we would try and film every episode going forward from there so we're about to hit on Unbelievable landmark of 50 episodes of the Noise Podcast. If you are still a listener at this point or you're a brand new listener, holy fucking shit, thank you so much. Uh, if you give us a subscription on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you're listening to the podcast, that would be amazing. Um, we are going to be back next Tuesday. Uh, we will be reviewing a new Fit for a King album, definitely, and possibly the new Napalm Death record as well. But I will have a look at um, what's, com what's coming out and decide what's best for us to review on that show. Thank you for listening. We're going to be back next week. We love you very much. Bye.